Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. A quick programming note for this week's episode. At the time Erica Smith and I spoke, she was a candidate for Senate in North Carolina. She's since ended her Senate campaign and declared as candidate for the House from North Carolina. However, we wanted to bring you this episode as it is because the things that she has to say and the things we speak about about the Senate remain true and are so important. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano. And this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson. In this week for Alyssa Milano, who's off supporting her new movie, Brazen, which just released on Netflix. If the Democrats want to increase their razor-thin majority in the Senate, the state of North Carolina is an essential pickup. Incumbent Republican Richard Burr is retiring, and the state has been trending more and more blue. Late last year, I sat down with Erica Smith, a progressive rural Democrat running for the seat. Democrats have the slimmest of majorities in the U.S. Senate. Balance of power, 55th. But Vice President Kamala Harris is the tie-breaking vote. In Washington, CBS News has confirmed that a federal search warrant was issued to North Carolina Senator Richard Burr. It's part of a probe of financial moves before the coronavirus outbreak sent the markets plunging. When we get down to the dynamics of who we need to send to represent us, we need to send someone with integrity, with character, who is about results and not rhetoric. I'm highly, highly competent, and that's what they fear. I am someone who brings a broad background. I have the business acumen, the intellect to be able to articulate on the issues. Hi, everyone. I'm Erica Smith former three-term state senator running to represent North Carolina communities and not corporations in Washington, D.C. Sorry, not sorry. Erica, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. I think when a lot of people think of North Carolina in the media and outside of North Carolina and elected officials from North Carolina, you might not be what they picture. You're a progressive, you're a pastor, you're a woman of color. Um, is North Carolina really as conservative and as white as many people outside of North Carolina might think? North Carolina is a sleeper to some people. We are really a purple state. We have had so much influx of people all over the nation who have discovered the secret that North Carolina is a beautiful place to live. It's a wonderful place to live. And so I'm really excited about our changing demographics. We picked up a congressional seat for 2022 because North Carolina is growing. There's so much diversity in our state. We have Research Triangle Park. And we have a concentration of technology, hospitals, and farmers. And so as broad as that perspective and landscape is, that is the candidate that I am, a broad candidate who spent time working in corporate America as an engineer who's also been an educator for, you know, 
15 plus years and really excited about how I embraced all of who North Carolina is. And so really, really excited about the opportunities. But no, North Carolina is not as conservative as we have been in the past. And we have now a wide open landscape for someone who's willing to fight for a platform that is big enough and bold enough to solve the problems that working families are facing all over the state and all over the nation. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about you, and you mentioned this just a little bit, is that you, your background is very representative of some of the different segments that you just mentioned. So you grew up, you spent some time working on a family farm, but you also have a degree in engineering, is that, or you studied engineering in college, correct? And, and so if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and who you are and how that informs your campaign and what that would inform your work as a senator as well. Yeah, great question, Ben. So. I come from very humble beginnings. I was born on a military base in North Carolina. My dad was in the Air Force, so I come from a military family. There are five girls and one boy in my family in terms of children. And we, after traveling around the world and traveling around the nation, my dad retired. We came back home to Northampton County, where my parents grew up on their family farms that were neighboring farms. And we farmed. I harvested uh, cucumbers, corn, and soybeans having to wake up in the morning, being from can't see in the morning to can't see at night, uh, spending those days of labor, whenever I would lament and cry and be so tired, I would look up in the sky and I'd see these airplanes and going to the uh, see the Thunderbirds on the military bases on Flag Day. It inspired me to become an engineer. So I was very fortunate to be able to attend a um, specialty high school in North Carolina, the School of Science and Mathematics. And there I was able to develop my passion. I attended North Carolina A&T State University, uh, which is located in Greensboro, North Carolina. And many of your listeners may know this, but that is the university that produces the most engineers, um, Black engineers on every level, bachelor's, uh, master's, and doctoral level. I was uh, fortunate to be student body president there. So I've always been heavily involved in politics. And having that opportunity to become an engineer and work uh, for Boeing, I've stayed in engineering for about 13 years. And after engineering, I went on a mission trip to Uganda, and it was there that I was inspired to place service um, over self and realize that we can send technology to Jupiter and back, but we don't do so well with advancing that technology into developing countries beyond our borders. And even some remote and rural parts within our borders. I'm specifically talking about the challenge for broadband right here in North Carolina and many communities. And so that led me into community development, investing in community, building communities. So I started off as a local leader. I'm an ecumenical leader. I'm ordained by the largest Baptist association in North Carolina. So I've been a Baptist minister for about 21 years. And so through that leadership, community building and getting involved in politics on the local level, grassroots level, I've worked my way up through leadership on the local level, every level of the state prior to running for a congressional federal office. And I think that's important. I've I've spent this time gaining the tools and learning the rules. And as, as a Democrat, too often we have conceded the religious vote to Republicans. And so it gives me a very attractive ability to be able to not only message to rural voters, but also be able to message to uh, religious voters, voters in the South who really want somebody who's just going to put them first and understand the problems and the troubles that they have to navigate day in and day out. And so that's why we commonly say I'm one of us for all of us. 
because the various background that I have, the broad diversity of my own experiences, and the decades that I've spent building a broad coalition of working class folks in this state. I want to talk about your experience as a minister a little bit, because I do think broadly, when much of the country thinks pastors are ministers in politics, you picture conservative white men. But we've recently seen Raphael Warnock elected to the Senate, who is a minister. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what the role of progressive clergy is in American politics and if you're seeing that change right now. Yeah, I am seeing that change just based on the whole conversation, because you will find that the movement that Senator Raphael Warnock and I are in, we see systems as sin and not just individuals. Today is the beginning of a a continuing fight in pursuit of that grand American idea. One person, one vote. I think that all of us who have been given this sacred trust of serving in the Senate, of serving in public office, always have in front of us a fundamental question. Now that we're in this office, whatever the office is, have we now been given power in service to public service? Or will we use the pursuit of public service in service to power. So when you look at systems that perpetuate inequities upon marginalized communities, that is sinful. Systems that are so broken that those who are sick cannot have access to health care. And we say that health care is a basic human right. And for us, folks don't need access. Folks need health care. And what we have is a health insurance program. We don't have a health care program. It's a health insurance program. And all the profits are being stuffed out by the pharmaceuticals and the hospital CEOs. And so we need to change that broken system. We see systems of sin and inequity for what we teach on Sundays and in our churches and Wednesday Bible study. The Lord hates unjust waste. He hates inequity. And so as we're building from a place of from a faith reference, we're understanding that We have to fight for the poor, for the marginalized, for those who have not been given their fair share and their opportunities to aspire to the American dream. That's what made it so easy for Senator Warnock to message off of the $2,000 stimulus check, although we didn't quite get there yet, but understanding that folks are struggling day in and day out. And we have become, sometimes we become so otherworldly focused on the heaven after a while, we're not realizing that we need to do some earthly good and focus on how we can build and invest in communities and align what we say we believe about God and actually implementing those beliefs at the ballot box and working with people who are going to invest in those who have been underserved. Let's shift gears for a second and talk about education, because I think it it ties in a little bit with what you were speaking about, both our aligning our beliefs with our policy. But it's also something that's become really politically dangerous right now, possibly, that you you see what happened in Virginia in the governor's race. You see what's happening with mask protests at school board meetings. But I want to talk a little bit, I want you to tell us a little bit about what education means to you and how do we get out of this moment of politicization of what's happening in our schools? 
And see, that's another advantage I have because I am currently a secondary math instructional uh, specialist and I have worked in the public school system now for 17 years. So I can talk education and it's more than talk. It's not just tell, I can show you. And so with this show and tell and having a fundamental understanding of education, being an advocate, a strong advocate for public education, I am able to message on the issues in a way that parents understand that parents have the priority in um, their children's education. We do understand that. But we also understand the standards of learning and making sure that we are teaching the truth in our schools and knowing what we teach and what we don't teach. We have too often allowed Republicans to take a very divisive issue that technically does not even exist. We're not teaching critical race theory in our K through 12 school systems. That is a legal theory that is taught in law schools. It has no relevance in K through 12 education, but we do teach history. We teach the facts of history. History is not something that you can change. It has happened. And so we need to teach the history so that our students understand it. And I'm also all about that literacy and understanding. If a people who does not understand their past, they're destined to repeat the mistakes. Ascribing to what Marcus Garvey said, what Malcolm X said, we understand fundamentally we need to make sure we are correcting and fixing broken systems of inequity that have been perpetuated from 400 years of slavery and systemic discrimination and racism that comes as a holdover from that. So I'm really excited about the leveraging opportunities that I have as an educator, but also who understands what is actually going on in the classrooms and the partnering relationships that we have with our communities and with our parents. let's talk about that messaging for a minute, just broadly, because I think it's something that we on the left tend to get wrong, but I'm not sure what the right path is to get right. Because if you look at much of the messaging from the right, it's fear-based. You are going to lose this thing if the progressives take over. And much of the messaging from the left is aspirational-based, like we want to give you something. So it's hope-based. And it seems that fear has been a more potent messenger in the immediate term, not over the long term. And I'm wondering if you have ideas on how progressives can message more effectively a hopeful message so that it competes more effectively with the fearful message of the other side. Okay, let's begin with the premise of that. Too often, we have run against the fear-mongering of the other side, but also it's no longer enough to just say, I'm better than the other guy. Too often, we don't run on a platform. We run away from a platform. So before we talk about messaging, let's talk about a platform. We need to have a platform that is big enough and bold enough to solve the issues and challenges that everyday Americans are facing day in and day out. The struggle with a broken economic system where you have food lines further than the eye can see, yet you have millionaires and billionaires tripling their net worth in the middle of a pandemic. The pandemic has been a lucrative time for America's billionaires, with a new report showing that uh, the nearly 750 billionaires here in the United States have collectively increased their wealth to the tune of one 
trillion dollars. You know, you hear about all that fear mongering in regard to inflation. You hear about, oh, the business community is really suffering. But when you scratch beneath the surface, as we should know by now, the individuals who are suffering the most are workers, whereas the investor class, the executive class, is doing pretty well for themselves. We need to talk about the pandemic in a way because the other side is coming from a place of fear. My child is disenfranchised. My child has to wear a mask and the vaccine is not safe. It's not tested. It's not tried. What we do know is that 100% of the people who are dying did not get the vaccine. And so being able to message from a reference point of understanding, let's take the fear out of it. Let's come down to the facts and let's talk about, let's talk about the vaccine. For years, we have mandated vaccinations for students to be able to go to school. And so when we look at this, it's no longer a personal choice issue. This is about public safety and public health. And because it is a public health issue, we provided mandates for vaccinations against smallpox, against polio. So how is this any different? So being able to have those conversations where we take the fear out of it and look at what we have done what has worked, and what can we do to keep our people safe. Now, also dealing with the messages, the fear-mongering, if you elect a Democrat, they're going to take your guns away. Or if you elect a Democrat, they're going to kill all the children. They're going to raise all of our taxes. So that's why we need to center ourselves on what our platform is. We're not talking about taxing everybody, but we are discussing a wealth tax of, of 1% so that we can make sure that everybody is paying their fair share. If we look at the 2017 Tax and Spend um, Jobs Act that President Trump passed, that act alone changed the tax plan so that 400 of the wealthiest families in this nation were paying less in taxes than 50% of working folks, which should not happen. And so being able to be abreast of the issues in a way that you're able to break them down and talk about what is in it for this average voter. And then you get them to move from the fear aspect to dealing with the facts and being able to realize that we must talk to each other. And so another key component of that is that many people on the extreme right have been told, you can't talk to her. She's a Black woman who's a Democrat. And I've been told that I can't talk to them. We started a dollar door initiative in our campaign. And that dollar door initiative was for every dollar that was donated to our campaign, we knocked on a door in a red county that Trump won in 2020. And the reason we did that is because we know behind every one of those doors is someone that's facing life challenges that they have not been able to overcome. Behind every one of those doors is one more person that we can engage in conversation in this process and be able to talk about the issues that are keeping them up at night. And behind every one of those doors is one more person that may not look like me, Uh, may not have the same socioeconomic status, may not have the same job, may not have the same demographics, but guess what? They have to navigate broken systems that have continued to take investments out of people and put it into corporations. And so we know that we have that in common and there is a way that we can address that, but we got to be willing to have those conversations. So in a nutshell, let me summarize because I am an educator. First, we need to have a powerful message and a strong message that overcomes the fear. Then we have to be able to have a messenger who is equipped and able to have these conversations and a messenger who is willing 
to go to those who don't identify with me and understands the importance of building relationships and an understanding so we can get to the America that we know we can be, an America that works for all of us, not just the wealthy and not just the well-connected. I think that's so smart. It's something that Alyssa and I have tried to do on social media lately is opening up these Twitter spaces specifically to have conversations with people that we may not agree with. It's become so easy for the other side to become avatars or to become these idea of something else, right? As opposed to the person behind it. And when you have those conversations, you actually find that the roots of many of the issues we face are the same, even if we disagree about how to go about fixing them. So I think that's great. And I appreciate that you're doing that because too few of us are doing that these days. So thank you for that. I think that it's really challenging to be an elected official right now, especially in the Senate, which no matter what happens in 2022, will very likely still be pretty closely divided. Right now, major policy initiatives are not going through in the way that many progressives had hoped because of just one or two people on one side and all of the people on the other side. I'm wondering when you get to Washington, what's your philosophy about how you're going to move progressive ideals forward through a divided government? It's wonderful that I've had this experience for three terms in the North Carolina Senate. And in the North Carolina Senate, I was the only Democrat elected off of the 2016 racially gerrymandered districts and the 2018 partisan gerrymandered districts who represents a 100% rural district in the North Carolina Senate. North Carolina has 100 counties, 80 of them are rural, and all of them, all of the rural districts, with the exception of my Senate district, are represented by Republicans. Rural America makes up 20% of the country, so that's basically 60 million people. I don't know how you win elections if you write off 60 million people. We need rural folks to feel seen. Like if folks don't feel seen, by progressives or the left, there's not a lot of reason to kind of stick with this. There is not enough progressive help in rural communities for people to make meaning of what's happening in the country. So whether that's changing demographics, changing economic conditions, changes in popular culture, if we're not present, the only folks that are gonna help people make meaning are the right, often the extreme right, often white nationalists. Despite being in a Republican supermajority, Ben, I was able to earn in my very first term being in a Republican supermajority, I was able to earn freshman senator of the year by the largest union in our state. And I was able to do that because I took my engineering skills to look at how we can re-engineer the policies to make them work just as well in our rural centers as they do in our urban centers. And then I formed that those conversations that need to be had about what's in it for your constituents, what's in it for my constituents, what's in it for the state of North Carolina, when we can be a state that where the weak grow strong and the strong grow great, according to our North Carolina Old North State uh, toast, which is the aspirational goal in which we work for. I will be no different when I go to Washington, D.C. I understand that I am there to represent constituents and putting people first and constituents first. I am not beholden to any corporation or special interest. I don't take money from corporate interests and corporate PACs, nor fossil fuel CEOs. I don't accept that money. And that keeps me free to be able to represent the people who are sending me to Washington, D.C. How would I legislate? You have to legislate from a reference of understanding the parliamentary procedures that you have before you, how to navigate the policy dynamic in the conversations. Some points you have to make in private. 
other points you need to put on the floor. And then thirdly, you need to be willing to do the work, build the consensus, do your research, provide the legislative route. If you have to end the filibuster, you need to end the filibuster to get it done. That's why I have been unequivocal on this and the only candidate in this race from day one who has said we need to either abolish the filibuster or abolish democracy as we know it. And too often, we have people who don't understand how to navigate policies and how to get um, legislation through the pipeline and through bottlenecks. But when you start building that consensus and the caucus and able to do your research, I have found that to be very effective. And it's, that's why I was elected Senator of the Year by the League of Conservation Voters for the work that I did in addressing climate change. That's why I'm Senator of the Year by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, Political Woman of Courage of the Year by the United Nations chapter in North Carolina. And so also being elected into leadership by the chair of the Bipartisan uh, Legislative Women's Caucus, which are all the Democratic and Republican women in the Senate and the House in North Carolina. That comes from understanding how you can um, be effective and deliver by understanding the policymaking process. And in this race, I have the most policymaking experience of any other candidate in the race on every level. You mentioned the League of Conservation Voters, and I know that you have in your platform a Blue New Deal. And I wonder if you tell us a little bit about that and what clean water means to the people of North Carolina. I got my political consciousness as a teenager in the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. And that's Warren County, North Carolina, when they had the toxic PCB dumping back in the late 80s. And so being taken to those marches by aunts and, and older siblings and understanding the movement around making sure we're creating toxic-free environments. Too many marginalized communities live within this radius of corporate polluters, and it's definitely impacted the quality of life. To your point and to your question, I have always been a climate advocate, and that's been throughout uh, you know, my time of understanding what that means. I have fought against coal ash dumping in tier one counties, high poverty counties. We had to fight that off in my own county as a state senator, but also as a regular citizen. These citizens never benefited from the power that was generated by the coal ash burning. So why would you come to these poor communities, poor minority communities, and want to dump your coal ash? And so that being a champion fight for me, I thought that it was important to be global and be strong and have a broad perspective of how we need to address global warming and take bold climate action. So that included the Green New Deal for me. I'm a firm advocate of the Green New Deal. Not only do we create millions of good paying jobs, but we also are able to build the energy system of the future that we need, but also to have a sustainable planet. This week, a workplace revolution. As the world moves away from high carbon industries, what are the green jobs of the future? Everybody in the world, all the big companies, all the smaller companies along the, the clean tech, the green energy, but also the sustainability space in general uh, are hiring. 
Are electric cars good for your career? We break down the numbers from factory to showroom. A future of the automobile industry that is electric. Battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, fuel cell electric. It's electric and, and uh, there's no turning back. A blue new deal talks about how we need to protect clean water, protect our oceans. I have always firmly been committed to banning offshore drilling. I am against fracking. I'm also against not doing anything to mitigate sea level rise. A large portion of North Carolina along the coast is experiencing much devastation because of sea level rise, because of toxins um, in our water. I'm sure most of you are familiar about the chlorofluorocarbons and the Gen X that was placed in the water by Keymore's, a chemical company down in eastern North Carolina. We thought it's important because of our lifetime of fight to make sure we are doing more and expanding the Green New Deal to include a deal that protects our waterways, protects our oceans, provides mitigation for sea level rise and the causes of global warming. But also, to an extent, I work with a lot of farmers and dealing with farmers in these 500-year floods that have come every year in North Carolina. I represented the oldest town, first town incorporated by free slaves, Princeville, North Carolina, that was devastated by Hurricane Matthew and continues to be devastated by tropical storms. And the only reason these storms and hurricanes are happening is because we're not doing enough to take on climate change. So that's why it's important for us to have this blue deal. And we're fighting just as vigorously for that as we are the Green New Deal. We have to take bold action. The climate change is the biggest existential threat to our existence. And we need to make sure that we are taking strong enough action to mitigate that. How can our listeners support your campaign? And what is your argument for people outside of North Carolina to chip in for you? Our argument is that what's going on in Washington, D.C. now impacts the entire nation. There, there should never be a, we have both chambers support uh, John Lewis and his fight for voting rights and protecting voting rights. And those same chambers that honored the life of John Lewis the U.S. Senate did not then turn around and pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It makes no sense. So we need to protect democracy as we know it. We need to protect voter rights. And that's why everyone in this nation needs to be vested in our race and sending someone to Washington, D.C. who's going to champion the people of this nation. What's in it for outside of folks who don't live in North Carolina? You can't vote for me but you can certainly help us remain competitive and send someone who's going to fight for all of us in Washington, D.C. and in Congress. And so our website is Erica for us, E-R-I-C-A-F-O-R-U-S, ericaforus.com. And we took on that motto because I'm one of us for all of us. I'm one of us who's going to fight for us. Also, if you're interested in joining our movement, we are building momentum every day. Text JOIN, J-O-I-N, to 51550. Text JOIN to 51550. Become a part of the movement that we are building in North Carolina to send someone with strong union roots. I understand the importance of holding the line. I've been a union member of every profession that I've worked in. And without a union scholarship, I told you there I have five siblings. Four of us were in college at the same time. My parents, my, my dad's farm, we went in the red in the late 80s, and my parents did everything they could to hold on to the family farm. I don't come from wealth. I come from hard work. 
and I appreciate the value of a dollar. Every dollar that is donated to our campaign is invested in our people-powered movement. We are not using a dollar to pay high, expensive consultants that really don't know the lay of the land and what we need in Washington, D.C. I can assure you that your dollar is an investment in flipping North Carolina blue. Also understanding that I value everything that everyone donates to me because as a single mom raising two kids, having to pay daycare that combined for two children was more than my rent and my car note. I understand how difficult it is for moms and women to stay in the workforce and the disproportionate amount of women who had to leave the workforce in the pandemic. So you want someone in Washington, D.C. fighting for you who's had to navigate these broken systems. And I have uh, paid my dues. I've learned the rules. But most of all, I've gained the tools to be able to deliver for the people of North Carolina as well as the people of this nation. Great. And one thing we'd like to ask all of our guests before we end the interview is what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Wow. There's so much that gives me hope, particularly in the progressive movement. I'm looking at Congresswoman-elect Sheila Scherfelist in Florida. That's really exciting. What gives me hope is understanding that Georgia was able to flip blue because we had Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff talking about issues that matter to everyday folks. So what gives me hope is that we are resonating and understanding that we can be a great country, but not until we take care of the most vulnerable. And it's time to be inspired by representative democracy, but the diversity that makes us strong and having those voices at the table and being able to be a part of this movement has just been exciting. And instilled hope in me that we are coming to a place where we are working toward healing, where we are coming to understand the importance of coming together and fighting for the folks who need us to fight for them the most. That's what gives me hope. Well, Erica Smith, you give us hope. So thank you so much for all that you do and for being part of the podcast. I am so happy to be a part of this podcast. Thank you so much. Elizabeth Milano has been doing so much work representing us in D.C. from her spheres of influence and just happy to join Alyssa and joining you, Ben, for this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to coming back in the very near future. And we are in this together. Let's get this done. Life hasn't always been easy for me. My father was in the Air Force and I was born at Fort Bragg Army Base. My mom raised the six of us and we grew up picking cucumbers and corn on the family farm. I don't come from wealth. I come from hard work. Farming was difficult and so was growing up black in the South. I know what it means to struggle, to fight the kind of fights that so many families across North Carolina are fighting today against eviction, against poverty, against crippling medical bills, against floods and storms that are claiming lives and livelihoods across the state. But who's really on the other side of that fight? How many of these politicians have ever wanted for anything in their lives? I'm Erica Smith. I'm an engineer, educator, minister, and three-term state senator. I understand the dignity of work, the value of faith, and the importance of serving our communities. Democrats have largely ceded rural voters to the GOP with disastrous results. Just look at West Virginia, which used to be a Democratic stronghold and which now votes overwhelmingly Republican. 
we need to do a much better job of selling progressive and democratic ideals to rural voters, and we need to do a better job of listening to their challenges and coming up with progressive solutions to those problems. If we don't, we'll never get out from under the grip of the extreme right. It's why we need to keep supporting and nominating candidates like Erica Smith, candidates who have experienced those challenges and lived in those places. The midterms are already here. Primaries start in March. We'll need each of you to get involved. There's just too much at stake to sit on the sidelines, even if you're still tired from 2020. I know I am. But now's the time, friends. Let's go win some elections. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.